Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's sermon comes from 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. The word of God speaks to us. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you. See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is God's word to us. Thank you. Are all your scripture readers that good? Goodness gracious, that was amazing. I just feel like we need to pray and have communion. Um, it's good to be with y'all this morning. Uh, Sean, thanks for the introduction. I, I am, you know, tempted to just go on and on, and we don't have time. But I, I'll just say this. Um, y'all are a dangerous congregation in the best way, Right? Like you could say a lot of kind things about about congregations and churches, but I think the best thing that I could say and the true thing that I need to say is that y'all are a dangerous congregation. You're as in like when Jesus said that his church would would prevail over the gates of hell, that kind of dangerous, right? You're dangerous to 
consumer Christianity. You're dangerous to loneliness. You're dangerous to injustice in your city. Like the ways that y'all love God, love people, and push back darkness is exemplary. You encourage specifically Frontline Edmund in so many ways, and we're blessed to have you as a, uh, a big sister church. And so thank you guys for being who you are and loving Jesus and each other and your city how you do. It means more than you know to, to some people that you might only get to see every year at a, a congregational member, our churchwide members meeting. And so I love you a lot. It's a big honor for me to be here. Um, I want to pray for y'all. I want you to pray for me, and then we will we'll jump in together. So Father, I thank you that I get to be with my friends here today at Frontline South. I thank you for the blessing that they are, and my prayer is that I would bless them in this moment, that I would be able to pro- proclaim Paul's words in this letter in a way to, to help them see, help all of our hearts see and grasp the beauty of you, Jesus, what it means for us. And so we know, Spirit, that you're working in us and through us, and, and we pray that you would help us be present in this moment to, to hear and to take hold of all that you would have for us. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. And God's people said, amen. It's Luke 18, 27. Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. I like to use my redeemed imagination and just imagine myself kind of in the crowd of the disciples when Jesus says this. What's impossible with man is possible with God. And even now as I say that, I don't know how you feel, but I, I kind of have to like shimmy, like, ooh. Like I, I imagine when the disciples heard that, they had their hair stand up on their body. They experienced goosebumps. Even if they didn't understand fully what he was saying in the moment, I feel like they felt it because I know Jesus meant it. Like if ever a man meant what he said, if ever a man believed the words that had just come out of his mouth, Jesus meant and believed that statement. Jesus, the Son of God, embodied and personified that statement. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And I just imagine when he said it, those words landed with, with weightiness. But I also imagine that if you looked real closely, you could see just like a fierce joy in his eyes when he said it. What is impossible with man is possible with God. The context of that statement is is found in Luke chapter 18, and there's a, a man who's described as a rich ruler. Matthew says that he's a young rich ruler, and by ruler, we mean religious leader, a Pharisee, or a part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious leaders of Israel at the time. And he comes to Jesus, and he comes to Jesus with a question. And the question is, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And as the conversation progressed, we see that this rich, young religious leader had come to Jesus asking this question. This man, on all accounts, was like a great guy. He had a lot going for him as it relates to obeying God. But Jesus says to him, one thing you lacked, sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And the man's response to Jesus's invitation is is what? It's great sadness, Luke tells us, because he had great possessions or maybe better put like great possessions we see had him. 
Luke tells us what happens next. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who could be saved? Then who can be saved is the question, the big question, the ultimate question. The disciples that saw this play out, they're, they're crestfallen, they're, they're discouraged, they're incredulous. If this guy, who's so great, can't enter the kingdom of, of heaven, then who can be saved, Jesus? And it is in the answering to this question that we get this incredible statement. But he said, Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And one of the things that I love about Jesus, I think one of the things that we all love about Jesus is that like he says the most profound, amazing things in the history of the world, and he backs it up always, <laughs> right? He, he, his word is profound and true, and yet he, he always does what he says. And so when he says, hey, what's impossible for man is not impossible with God, you flip the pages, you continue to read Luke, and he does what he says. Look at what happens in Luke chapter 19, the very next page. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. If you grew up in church, you know the song, right? Because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So this crowd is escaped scandalized, right? Because Jesus takes a beeline to the richest man in the city of Jericho, likely, but unlike this rich young ruler, not a guy that seemed to be righteous and, and be good at obeying God's laws, but, but quite possibly not only the richest man, but the man richest in sin in all of Jericho. Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector, a Jew taking taxes from God's people of Israel to fund the empire that's oppressing and subjugating him, but he's also among all tax collectors extorting, taking money off the top for his own gain, and he's not just one of them, he's the leader. He's the the kingpin of this Ponzi scheme. And Jesus runs right up to him and says, hey, you're having me over for dinner and a sleepover. I'm hanging out with you in the city. <laughs> and during that stay, certainly there was lots of discussion and conversation and prayer. And the next morning, Zacchaeus emerges, and he proclaims this for all the city to hear. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, let's slow down so we don't just pass over that. Some of us might be really familiar with this story. 
And so just pretend like you haven't heard it before. Let it impact you for like it did maybe the first time. Zacchaeus gives away this very, very wealthy man half of his wealth to the poor, and then the remaining half he pledges to make restitution four times for what he's defrauded of anyone. And, and we know historically that he cheated a lot of people. So functionally, he is giving away everything he has. He's doing enjoy what caused such sadness in the life of the rich young ruler. He's selling all he has, giving it to the poor so he can follow Jesus and have treasure in heaven. So I, I wonder, I dream uh, uh, about what happened over that dinner, over that time with Jesus and Zacchaeus. I want to know details, right? <laughs> but Jesus lets us in on what happened. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, today, Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So beaming through, saturating the soul of Zacchaeus is joy. The day before, he was, he was captured by a deep passion to get, to get, to get. And then he encounters Jesus. Jesus comes and finds him and befriends him, moves in literally for the day and, and speaks to him, loves him, leads him, proclaims truth to him. And then the next day, he's not captured with a passion to get, but he's captured with a passion to give. He's a new man. God took hold of him, and as God has taken hold of him, Zacchaeus is letting loose of his greed. What's impossible for man is not impossible with God. What we see in the story is that God can save anyone, and when God does save someone, always it changes our relationship with possessions and wealth. And true salvation in Christ leads to a heart in a person that's generous. So this morning, we're going to continue the series, Rhythms of Grace, right? Rhythms of Grace, these regular occurrences of undeserved free gifts from God in our life. And we're going together to talk about the rhythm of grace that is giving. And as we do, there's lots of places we could go, but I think a place that's most helpful for us this, helpful for us this morning is 2 Corinthians 8. Because what you're going to see here is the Apostle Paul riding to the church in Corinth, and he's sharing the miracle that happened in the heart of Zacchaeus. It's the message from Paul to this church, that they would excel in the grace of giving. So as we begin to look at this letter, I want to give us some context as to historically what's happening. To help understand the portion of this letter, we need to really have three churches in mind. And the, the first, obviously, is the church to which it is written, the church in Corinth. And Paul wrote many letters to the church in Corinth. Two of them are, are in Scripture. And so he's writing here in 2 Corinthians to Corinth. And, and Paul planted this church on one of his missionary journeys, and we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that as he had, had 
apostled this church and poured into them and loved them and, and led them and sought for their good, one of the things that he had began to plan with them was something that it was important in Paul's ministry, and it's simply referred to as the collection. So Paul didn't just plant and strengthen churches, but part of his ministry was taking up a collection from all the churches for, and this is for the second church we need to keep in mind, for the church in Jerusalem. Because the church in Jerusalem was, uh, it was in many ways, the first church. All these other churches were, were supported and planted out of the church in Jerusalem, which began in Acts chapter 1 and 2. But what happened was as Paul talked to the, Cor- the Corinthians about taking up this offering, this, this gift for this church in Jerusalem because they were in severe poverty and experiencing severe affliction, what happened between the writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is that the church in Corinth got off the rails. They got sideways. They began to listen to liars, and they began to reject the leadership of the Apostle Paul. Now, what we're seeing here in this letter is this is being written after a time that they've experienced repentance. They're turning back to the Lord and Paul's leadership. And so Paul is now returning to this idea as this church is being restored and he's, he's pouring into them and, and strengthening them and encouraging them. He's revisiting the call to give generously to the church in Jerusalem who's in great need. And it's important to understand that this section of Scripture is not about tithing or regular giving to the church. Now, tithing and regular giving are, are deeply important, and there are plenty of Scriptures that speak about that. But this passage is about a very specific one-time gift to another church. It's a very specific scenario, but what Paul shares in this passage, in this letter, has very broad encouragement and implications for us. Paul tells us important things about giving and the Christian's heart behind giving and the grace of giving. And to begin to teach these things, Paul holds up this third church for the Corinthians and us to consider as a powerful and a profound example. And that leads us to the first point I want us to see. It's the Macedonian model. Let me read how he begins again in this passage. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints." And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So as Paul writes to this church in Corinth, he's going to really pastorally and gently begin to encouragingly bring up and hold up this unbelievable example of the church in Macedonia, this little sister church of Corinth. We want you to know, brothers, he writes, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And the grace of God here is the Macedonian church's generous heart that desires to give. The grace that Paul refers to is this this deep desire, this passion that these little churches have to be generous and to give to others. 
the grace of giving is what this passage is all about. The word grace in Greek appears in these verses eight times as Paul writes to the church in Corinth about giving. So we see that the giving for Paul and grace go hand in hand. They're inseparable. So Paul goes on to write, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, Paul just quickly said a bunch of important stuff that we need to know about the Macedonian church. They're people of poverty. Who are the Macedonian churches? They're they're made up of people who are experiencing and are living in real deep poverty. The the word that uh, that Paul uses here when he writes their extreme poverty is is the word in English that's translated to a bathysphere. And I had no idea what a bathysphere was. If you know what a bathysphere is, I'd be shocked. You're super smart. Congratulations. But I I was able to learn from commentaries what a bathysphere is. And it's uh, uh, in the English, it's a word that we use for a ship that was, a vessel that was invented about a a hundred years ago that, uh, you know, oceanographers like Jacques Cousteau used to explore the depths of the ocean. This, This little cylinder that a man or a woman could get into that could be dropped to the very bottom of the sea. Point being, the Macedonian church was on the ocean floor of poverty. The depths of the depths of the depths of poverty is what they experienced day in and day out. I know some of us in this room are honestly experiencing real financial hardship, but we're talking about people who were historically poor. The poverty that they experienced is is far beyond anything that many of us have ever come close to. In my city, in Edmond, it's fair to pick on us, right? Like, I've got friends that think they're poor because they don't live in a gated neighborhood. Silliness, right? I've got friends that think they're poor because they they don't go out to eat as often as they would like. That's not real poverty. This is real poverty the Macedonians knew. So there are poor people. Who are the Macedonians? Paul tells us also they're, they're an afflicted people. Commentaries tell us that the idea Paul is conveying here is that the church was being crushed by life. Picture this small church gathering in a small space and then picture literally the walls moving in on them. That's what's being conveyed here. That because of their devotion to Christ, culture, the city around them was oppressive and pushing back and they were being crushed by life, being squeezed tighter and tighter. One commentator said they're not only poor, they're picked on. And so what do they do? What's impossible with man is is possible with God. The Macedonian church, they're not just people who are poor. They're not just people who are afflicted. This is why Paul's holding them up as an example. They're people who are generous. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. From outside, they looked weak. From the outside, they, they, they looked like they had nothing. And Paul's holding them up and saying, hey, look inside. They're extraordinary. They have wonder. They're rich in joy. They're overflowing. 
And certainly what they gave wasn't much. That's not the point. What they gave, I'm sure, was very little because they didn't have much to give. But the the riches they had were their generous hearts. And they are the picture of a church that lives out the grace of giving. Paul goes on to write in verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Paul says that in a literal way, they gave contrary to their ability. So the picture Paul is painting is this, that that Paul, knowing and seeing their extreme poverty and their dire persecution, he didn't didn't want to take anything from them. We imagine a conversation with the elders of, of these Macedonian churches coming to Paul with an offering for the church in Jerusalem saying, hey, we've taken up a collection we want to give to the church in Jerusalem, and Paul's saying, oh, you guys, that's so sweet. <laughs> I'm so encouraged by that, that your hearts are, are, are just such an encouragement, but you guys need to keep that. I can't ask you. No one can ask you to give. We should probably be taking up an offering for y'all next. You need to just sit this one out. And, and the church saying, no, 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 Paul. Don't rob us of this joy. Let us give. Let us experience this grace and get this. This is the wonder. This poor church, they're begging Paul, Paul writes, not to receive, but they're begging for the joy and the honor and the ability for they themselves to give. Pastor Kent Hughes writes of this church in his commentary. This is the grace of giving. It is not dictated by ability. It has nothing to do with being well off. It is willing. It views giving as a privilege. It is joyously enthusiastic. And so if you're like me, as I've been studying this passage, it's like, what did these people hold on to? What was planted in their hearts? How is this possible in the life of this church? Verse 5. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, their grace was a response to God's grace. This is the key. This is the most important thing we need to know, we must know about the the churches in Macedonia. And it's profoundly powerful, but it's really simple. When we know that our lives are not our own, it makes it easy to know that our stuff, our possessions are not our own. See, Paul goes on to hold up the ultimate example of giving to the Corinthians in light of this. This is the second thing, the generosity of Jesus. Verse 8, Paul writes, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that even though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Historically, kings always give the best gifts. Like ancient kings, like the king of Babylon built gardens for his wife to cheer her up that were one of the wonders of the world. Elvis Presley, the king, 
one day gave like 13 Cadillacs to random people. It's just what good kings do, right? They just give good gifts. And Jesus Christ, as the king of kings, gives the best gifts. We can just reflect on it, right? He, he, he gave us the gift of life, the breath in our lungs. He gave us one another. He gave us ice creams, his heart, right? Like we have things that we can taste and things that we can experience. We have one another. We have spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives us. God gives good gifts, big and small. But the greatest gift of all that the king ever gave was himself. The Macedonians were an amazing example, but the ultimate example of giving is Christ. We sang it today, right? Humbly, you came to this earth, you created, all for love's sake became poor. Again, Kent Hughes, through, though Christ in his pre-existence with the Father could hold a white hot star in the palm of his hand, he emptied himself of his riches and became one of us, then died for us. Such was his poverty. So the grace of giving, if a church ever really wants to experience and walk out the grace of giving, that only can and must start with first being struck by the generosity of our King. When our hearts are actually profoundly moved in, in light of the generosity of Jesus at the foot of the cross, when we are struck with that generosity, it's only then that we can thunder in response with our own generosity, which is worship to Jesus. That's what you see in the Macedonian church. That's what Paul is calling the church in Corinth to and what we're called to that heaven gave grace to the Macedonian church, and then they gave in such a way that pointed back to heaven. In light of the generosity of Jesus, Paul charges the church in Corinth. He gives them some things to consider, some things to do. And so, I'll just share, like, I think four things that I, I was prayerfully considering my own life and my own congregation this week and looking at what Paul wrote. This is, this is what I think was an encouragement and a charge to us as we consider the grace of giving and what it looks like to live that out. What are the implications for the Corinthians and for us? These all start with P. I can't not literate at this point. It's a problem. But you're welcome if you're a note taker, Right? What are the implications for the Corinthians and for us that we would progress in the grace of giving? Look back to verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, that he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this grace also. See, the church in Corinth was the gifted church of the early church. They had so many gifts, and they were great at so many things. They were known for their faith. They were known for, for love. They were earnest. Many of them were gifted in speech. Many of them were gifted in deep knowledge of the gospel. It'd be great to be in a discipleship group with, right? We read 1 Corinthians, and we know that they had many spiritual gifts. They were so gifted in so many ways. They excelled in all these things. And yet Paul is saying, hey, you know, when it comes to the grace of giving, you've got room to grow. There's ways that you need to progress. 
That's as it is today, I believe, in the church in the West, the church in America. I read an article this week in Christianity Today by a guy named John Lee. It was written not long ago, about 18 months ago. And the title of the article is, Who are the most generous, not who do you expect? And he writes this, According to nonprofit source, only 5% of church members give regularly. This is amazing. He said, households that make more than 75000 are the least charitable. Nationwide Christians today give 2.5% of their income. For comparison, during the Great Depression, that number was 3.3%. 37% of those who consider themselves evangelicals don't give to churches at all. According to a study from the University of Notre Dame cited by Christian Smith and Hillary Davidson in their book, The Paradox of Generosity, when it comes to giving away 10% of finances, only 2.7% of people, religious or non-religious, fall into this category. And those, those numbers aren't scary primarily because we should be worried about local churches or, or organizations that seek to do good for the glory of God, not making budget. Those numbers should be scary first and foremost because the spiritual maturity of believers is at stake. No one grows to maturity in Christ without entrusting God with their finances. And as we see in Zacchaeus' life, and, and as we see in the life of the Macedonians, and as we hear Paul's call to the Corinthians, we know that, that as we follow Jesus, one of the fruits that will bear in our life is a generous heart. Jesus says, where our treasure is, our heart will be also. And so there's probably an invitation for some of us this morning that we're at a threshold of spiritual growth and, and the Spirit's inviting us to, to add rings to our tree to continue to mature and strengthen and deepen in our sanctification. And we might even be feeling kind of stagnant and that we're plateauing or, or, or just th th there's something that this, the Spirit's seeking to do. And what we might need to consider is that the area that Jesus wants to enter in, that there's a, a room in our heart that's locked to to, to Jesus, and that room might be our finances, and it's time that as he knocks on the door, we open that up, because he wants us, where Andrew began the series, to know his joy, and that it would be complete in us. And I, if you're like me, I find myself thinking sometimes, hey, when my kids get a little older, or when we pay off that debt, or when I get that raise, or when, or when, or when. And what struck me this week about the Macedonian church is it probably wasn't a very convenient time for them to be generous. But they knew the joy of giving. They knew the generosity of Jesus. And they were giving people in that moment. The second thing that is an implication and an application is that we would be purposeful and passionate in the grace of giving. Verse 10, 
And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. The Corinthians a year ago, before they had that falling out with Paul, before they lapsed, they had this passion to give a desire. This word desire here that Paul writes in the Greek fellows, it's a, it's a, it's a combination of determination and delight. Something that they had a passion to do and something they had decided they must do. And so that passion led to a plan to give for the church to be purposeful. They were plotting. They had been scheming. They had been organized and purposeful about taking up this collection to give, which is just a reminder to us as we look at things that we are passionate about that that should lead to being purposeful, to plan, And as it relates to all of these graces, these rhythms of grace, we don't spontaneously begin to fast on a whim, or we don't just accidentally drift into gospel community, or we don't haphazardly study the Bible. It takes intentionality, as you've probably heard again and again. Grace isn't opposed to effort. It's just opposed to earning. So it will require something of us, and so it is with giving. The grace of giving is a determination and a delight. And so we can be purposeful. We ought to be purposeful and prayerful. A mentor of mine, he, he, uh, a, a pastor, he always encourages me to, with my wife and my family, take January and July to prayerfully step back and consider, like, hey, how can I grow in what God would have for us in the coming months? What is God calling us to do? It's just a good time halfway through the year to just prayerfully process, hey, what am I called to, to do with my time, with my finances, with relationships? And so I'd encourage you all, this July, this season is a great time with all of the rhythms of grace, but particularly the grace of giving that you would process this month. Hey, what is God calling us to give to the poor? What is God calling us to to give to the local church? How is God calling us to be generous to those that we're in relationship with? Quickly, another implication, that we would be proportionately generous in the grace of giving. Verse 11, now finish doing it well, Paul says, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. See, God's focus is always the heart, is what Paul's saying. See, we should give according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. That's what I mean when I write proportionate giving, or I say proportionate giving. That God has entrusted, given us stewardship over different amounts in this congregation, in this church. It all belongs to him, and some of us have stewardship over what seems like a lot. Some of us might have stewardship in comparison over what is less, but both who have a lot and who have less, both who are even rich and those who are even poor, as we see in the Macedonian church, can all give great gifts to God. No one is barred from the rhythm of grace that is giving. Amount doesn't matter. It's the heart that matters. So maybe you're a college student and you can just give a little bit. Or you're a single parent and you can give what only feels like a little bit. But that's sacrificial to you. That's generous to you. That can be cheerful to you and it can bless God. And maybe you're blessed with a lot of resources and you've got a large income. Thanks be to God. And you can give more and your heart can be generous and sacrificial living out the grace to give too. 
everyone can experience the rhythm of grace that is giving regardless of what we have or we might not have. What came to mind even yesterday was when somebody showed me an envelope from the offering in Edmond, and it was early in the year, probably the first two months, and we had had a pretty slow start to our giving as a congregation. So I just had a family business moment on a Sunday and just shared with everybody, like, hey, we're quite a bit behind what giving was the last couple of years. And so if you're a new member of this church and you haven't stepped into participating in giving, I want to call you to do that. And you know, it, was, it wasn't a long moment, but then in the offering, there was a little envelope by a little boy, and it had his lucky 50-cent piece, and it was all the money he had. I blocked out his information, but he gave all the details. I love it where it says, phone number, I don't have one, and yet he gave what was precious to him, his lucky 50-cent piece. That was a lot to God. And the last thing, what are the implications for us? That we would be partners in the grace of giving. 13 through 15. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, Paul says, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul is not saying here, hey, Corinthians, y'all give to the church in Jerusalem, and someday they're going to give that back to you. Because the state of the church in Jerusalem was such that they were poor and oppressed, and they would never be able to, to pay back what the more affluent church in Corinth had. So what is Paul saying? He's talking about a partnership in the gospel that transcends and exceeds monetary support. See, the, the church in Corinth was planted in a real way out of the church in Jerusalem. Jerusalem supported and, and helped Paul. And through Paul, the church in Jerusalem gave the Corinthians the riches of the gospel. Paul's saying that churches are all gifted and all support each other in different ways. And the final line Paul makes to, to make this point, he's quoting the book of Exodus. He says, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever, whoever gathered little had no lack. In the wilderness, right, the people of God, they experienced the miracle of manna. And God took care of his people that nobody lacked. Everybody was taken care of. And Paul's saying, hey, now in the new covenant, that provision can take place through the grace of giving. The in a congregation, as some of us give little, some of us might be able to give more, all of us give sacrificially, that God is sovereignly moving to take care of our needs. That within partnerships of churches, there might be some churches we plant that we always financially support, but don't they bless us in ways that are just beautiful in their heart of mission, their bravery, their courage to proclaim the gospel. So what Paul shares here is what Zacchaeus experienced when he met Jesus. We experience saving grace as we do. We ought, we must respond in generosity and give. That giving itself is a grace. And going back to the beginning, you know, there's lots of metaphors we can use for these rhythms of grace. 
And yet one of the most helpful metaphors to my heart as we've been in this series is that same tree that Zacchaeus climbed up, right? He climbed up that tree. He took effort to get up there because he desired to see, to meet, to encounter Jesus. And that's what these rhythms of grace are like when we fast, when we pray, when we come to church gathered, when we experience gospel community, when we give. It's like we're climbing the sycamore tree of these spiritual disciplines, knowing that Jesus is coming by to encounter us, to speak to us, to see us, to come to our house, that we may know his undeserved good gifts in our lives. More than anything, the gift of himself. So may we as a church climb the tree of giving and in our generosity know the love of Jesus. Let's stand and pray.